Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. As you may have guessed, I'm Janine, Janine Strong. And today, I think you will find my conversation with Claude Anshin to be unusually inspiring. I'll give you a little background first, and then we'll get him on as soon as possible. At 17, Claude Anson enlisted in the U.S. Army and served in the Vietnam War as a helicopter crew chief. That's pretty young. I thought you had to be 18 to join. Maybe not. Um, he was honorably discharged at the age of 20 and was awarded numerous medals, including the Purple Heart. After battling severe post-traumatic stress, isolation, and addiction, he discovered Buddhist practice and began intensive training and study. In 1995, he was fully ordained as a Zen Buddhist monk in the Japanese Soto Zen tradition. Claude has dedicated his life to addressing the causes and consequences of violence, war, and suffering in individuals, families, and societies. Addressing our human suffering and how to make peace with our unpeacefulness through an active meditation practice teaches us that the human mind can learn to live in a different relationship with suffering, and through that, peace is possible. Claude, I'm excited to have you on. Thank you. You're welcome, Jeanine. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with, I always like to start with the backstory, you know, how you how you came to be where you are today, and um, uh, let let the listeners learn a little bit about who you are. Um, I'll be glad to do that. Um, one of the first things I w- would address, though, I, I was interested in your intro um, about the the ages of enlistment. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So um, I will lead into that. It, it's true that I did enlist when I was 17. Um, what is also true is that... Um, Technically, you weren't be able, you weren't supposed to be able to serve in in the combat theater unless you were eighteen. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily the case, but it was it was true for me. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Northwest Pennsylvania. Um, I was uh, born and raised. I, w- I was born sort of central western Pennsylvania in a uh, town named Meadville. Mm-hmm. Um, I was then. Um, raised in a smaller town north of there named Waterford. Uh, my father had been a soldier in the Second War, um, had come home, um, um, got a job. as His first job was as a policeman in Meadville. Um, he, uh, the story he told was that he uh, stopped one of the local um, clergy for running a red light or something like that, um, <laughs> gave them a ticket. And when he came back to the um, police office, um, he was read the riot act for doing that. And so he um, quit being a policeman and went to college. Um, <laughs> and at that time, they had a, a really good GI Bill. But he met my mother, and they married in, Mead- married in Meadville, and I was born there. Um, Waterford, Pennsylvania, small farming community in northwest uh, in northwest Pennsylvania, just south of Erie, um, uh, about mm-hmm. 900 people, Got and it. probably 60% of the men who lived in Waterford, and that could be higher, um, 
had served in the Second War. Mm-hmm. So there were, uh, with that generation, there was a particular, uh, particular way in which they were conditioned to deal with their military service. Okay. And that was okay. to not talk honestly about it, rather to tell heroic stories. Um, you know, they, they, they wouldn't. I remember I remember talking later with one man and and asked him, so how come you don't talk? What what prevents you from talking about um, with any kind of candidness your military, your experiences in war? And he said, well, people wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And and then he said, I mean, how can you explain to somebody the smell of burning flesh? It's true. And and, and yet yet it is incumbent upon us to really make that effort. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about the real experiences of of war, violence, and 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 suffering. Then those cycles are going to continue to perpetuate it because. What we're selling then is the glorification of war, and we're selling that that violence is a solution to is a conflict solution. Mm-hmm. And as we can see throughout history, um, violence only gets more violence. It's right. not really a solution. And so I was being conditioned by the society and culture I grew up in, and also by my father. Um, because he wasn't telling me the truth about war. He was he he had to somehow create a story, like most of the men I was exposed to, they had to create a story that um made their service and made their service something other than what it was. Mm-hmm. They had they had to create a heroic um a heroic dynamic out of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, plus, I was a an athlete. I was a three sport athlete, and what I've discovered sort of after the fact is that if we look at athletics, athletics is just another form of paramilitary training. The language around <laughs> athletics, uh, you see it. Uh, you see it with American football. I don't know if it happens with Canadian football or not, but you see the military flyovers and the uniform right. people coming out and the anthems and. And there was a certain glorification of the process. So I was really being poured into a funnel that led me to only one possibility, and that was to enlist in the military. Plus, my father said, look, um, you go into the military, and when you get out, you can go to school, and the government will support you with that. Um, now, when the, GI, the, the governmental support, the GI Bill that my father had, mm-hmm. uh, paid for everything. Um, mm-hmm. It was a different story when I got out of the military. Um, I was given a flat sum of money that didn't wasn't enough for anything really. It didn't cover rent. It didn't cover books. It didn't cover tuition. It would only I had to put it someplace, and 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 then that then the rest were left unaddressed. So I I did actually enlist in the military while I was still in high school. At the age of 17, there's a program called the Delayed Enlistment Program. Now, it's true. I could not sign a legal contract at the age of 17. So my father had to sign for me. Oh, okay. And he did. He, he was quite willing to do that. He was sort of very, in some some level, he was quite proud to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I signed. I joined the military. I finished high school. I graduated. And then after a certain period of time, I then 
was shipped off to um, induction. So I left out of Erie, Pennsylvania by bus, traveled to Buffalo, New York, and in mm-hmm. Buffalo, New York, I was um, inducted into the U.S. military. That's where I go through the, the I go through the um, physical, and then I take the oath, and you take a bunch of tests, and then from there I was transported to Fort Dix, New Jersey, where I went through basic training. My my introduction into the military was uh, traumatic for me. Uh, now my parents had divorced when I was young, um, and I was living with my father. My father was active in the politics of education, so he was really gone a lot. Plus, um, my father died at a young age. He, my father died at the age of 53. Oh, um, gee. My father drank alcoholically, smoked 60 cigarettes a day. And oh, my goodness. Had a horrible diet. Um, and I, I knew when he died, I knew what, I, I instinctively knew what killed him. And then I was living the same kind of life. Because that was what was modeled for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So from the age of 12 on, I was more or less making up my own rules. And I didn't really have much supervision. Well, when I went in the military, there's no making up your own rules. Um, (laughs) And it was was really a shock for me. Um, And my introduction was very bumpy. Um, I enlisted to do a, a number of different things. Um, and when it was discovered my age, they said I wasn't old enough to do any of those things, and if I wanted to do those things, I'd have to extend my enlistment, and I already knew at that time that um, I didn't know that military was the best choice for me. Mm-hmm. Now, what I didn't know was that I could have gotten out of the military under fraudulent enlistment because they'd promised me things they couldn't give me, um, but I didn't know that. No one told me. And, of course. And, and so I, I just... I made the, I, uh, I would say I made the, the best of those circumstances. Um, I, uh, I also in the military started to get into trouble with alcohol, and and uh, I was shipped off to Europe for specialized training. Once I'd finished my basic and advanced training, I was shipped off some very specialized training, and uh, in the midst of that. Uh, my alcohol consumption was really causing some problems for me. And so my solution was then to volunteer to go to war. I volunteered mm-hmm. to go to Vietnam. So if I changed, because I saw it was the place, it was the people, if I just change all of that. Like if I go to Vietnam, I saw the movies, right? Mm-hmm. All the World War, heroic World War II movies. So I go off to war. Um, first people will celebrate that I'm going off to war and everyone will love me. Then I will serve honorably and I will... Um, get a bunch of medals, and I'll come home, and I'll be a hero, and people will give me jobs, and people will love me, and and, and everything will be taken care of. This mm-hmm. was that I was functioning on. Um, I volunteered to Vietnam. They they accepted my um, my request to, to transfer duty stations immediately, be, because this was in the big buildup where we went from like thirty thousand troops to five hundred. So I was part of that big troop escalation. Um, so I, I went to Vietnam in 1966, um, but I can I can honestly share with you that when I um, I went over unattached, so I didn't go with the unit. There was just a there was a Boeing 707 filled with soldiers going to Vietnam, and none of us had units. Mm-hmm. So when we arrived, we arrived at um, Binwa Air Base. It's a it was a big airfield. Um, on on the outskirts of um, Saigon, and 
when they opened the door, when I stepped out of that door on the steps going down to the airfield, there were, I had this blast of awareness. Um, mm. It's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Mm. This is real. This 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 is not movies anymore. This is war, and it's not like playing um, playing war in the woods with your buddies, yeah, with your mm -hmm. friends. And you get shot here, and it's for real. Um, you get blown up here, and it's for real. There's no and and uh, that moment of, of awareness was um, was frightening for me. Um, I I was transferred to a place called Longbin. It was just an army camp. There was a, a replacement battalion, and I was there for ten days. And then I was um, called out of line and assigned to a, an assault helicopter company as a door gunner. Um, I served my um, uh, time. I served my time in Vietnam, my year in Vietnam, um, as a, a crew chief, as first as a, um, a helicopter door gunner, and then I um, was received a special training and changed my job uh, title from infantry to um, aviation and became a crew chief. Um, mm -hmm. Military training, I was deeply impacted, not only by the war, but, but, but by the military training and, and the conditioning to go to war. And I was, um, and I didn't know how profoundly I had been impacted. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Claude. What what the training? I mean, is it is it meant? My understanding, and I I really don't know that much about the military. I will admit, uh, but it's 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 intended to kind of break you down and then build you back up into the image that they want you to be. Yeah, I, I mean that's sort of the that's the traditional view of the process. I, mean, I don't. When you say it, I don't. I don't know if it's necessarily true that they their intent is to break you down. Okay. Their their intention is to um, educate you is to prepare you to go to war, and 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 to prepare you to go to war is is contraindicative of everything we have been taught growing up. Mm. Um, uh, to value life, to respect life. Um, um, yeah, how was, do you how do you how do you uh, balance? I mean, how how do those two things mesh when? Yeah, you know, they don't. That's what creates the difficulty. Mm. When it's happening when it's happening. You, you sort of don't realize. I didn't realize what was happening because it was just for me. It was just part of the process. I was in the military, and this is what we do. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I'm being taught to dehumanize a whole uh, a whole race of people. In this particular instance, it was the Vietnamese because we were in this fight with with Vietnam. Now, it did it, the, the training to see the Vietnamese as the enemy. It didn't discriminate between what is what what was considered the Vietnamese enemy and the Vietnamese who were supporting us. There was no there was no way to um, make that discrimination. It was the Vietnamese were the enemy, mm. and and in the process, what I've discovered is in the process of dehumanizing. Um, uh, creating the other, I also lose contact with my own humanity. So it's not possible to have a contact with my own humanity and dehumanize the other. Mm -hmm. What's encouraged 
what is encouraged and what's encouraged in war is the sort of behavior that's encouraged and rewarded in war when looking from it outside of war uh, from a from a non-military perspective it can seem both psychopathic or sociopathic mm -hmm. i can imagine but in the midst of it it's just what we do it's what we're trained to do mm -hmm. at 18 years old i was given the power to decide who lived and who died wow that's scary. I mean, your brain isn't even completely developed at that point. Yeah, but you can't tell an 18-year-old that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, I know, I know, um, uh, I, I mean, I remember uh, guys coming home from the Vietnam War, and um, they were so messed up. I just felt so bad for them. In my case, that that's true, um, and it's also true that I didn't even realize that because mm -hmm. it was just my life, and I just thought that the the chaos, the inability to sustain relationships, the inability to to hold a job, um, uh, my uh, use of my um, dependence on um, drugs and alcohol, I just thought that was just the way my life was. I didn't know that there were underlying issues driving that. And I and I had no chance to understand what those underlying issues were until I stopped attempting to um, hide them under a blanket of intoxicants or hide them through, through um, obsessive activity mm -hmm. uh, until I was willing to just sort of, until I was willing to slow down ask for help and, and allow some space to develop in my life so that the truth of how I was impacted could begin to show itself to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was really an awareness of post-traumatic stress at that time, was there? Well, there, there was an awareness. It just wasn't called that. Mm, okay. And we can see that, for example, in the, in the Civil War in the U.S., um, soldiers who were coming back from the Civil War, um, there was a, the term that was used then to describe the circumstances was soldier's heart. Okay. They were affected by soldier's heart. And then, and then uh, you have shell shock. Mm -hmm. It was a term to, to make an effort to describe what was going on. Um, so there, it, was, there was a, it was a recognized reality um, it just wasn't openly recognized, and it wasn't uh, really addressed. I also write in at Hell's Gate, I write that, um, you know, how many of our parents who served in the Second War uh, spent their time um, um, detached from the family down in the basement or off in the garage? We missed them. They were absent. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, I, I mean, I... I hadn't thought about this in a long time, really, but really, how do you, how do you reintegrate in a, a healthy way, emotionally, mentally, physically into society after going through something like that? I mean, 
I was just thinking that I, I can imagine that, for example, uh, if you were a British soldier, I mean, Great Britain went through in, in the war in World War Two, you know, the the common person, the po- uh, the populace would have much more of a, uh, a real idea of what war is about. Whereas in America, uh, we weren't, we weren't personally involved except for through, uh, through our soldiers, right? So I would think that most people in the States would have no idea really what, what you all were going through. But in countries that were actually a part of the war and were being bombed, uh, it might be a little different. They might, they have a more, uh, more realistic idea of what it was like for the soldiers. Yes. But what I would say to that is that um, uh, English, uh, British population, mm-hmm. the whole British population was traumatized. Right. Because they were in, they were in the war. Right. And That's what I mean. The differentiation between civilian and military in terms of how they were impacted were um, not that much different with the exceptions of those of us who had a uniform had to propagate um, the taking of lives. Um, reintegration, um, what, I've di- what I've discovered is that um, my task is not to reintegrate. My task is to discover how I fit now based on the truth of who I am coming out of the experiences that I've had. Okay. And and as long as I'm as long as I'm uh, attempting to avoid the feelings, the thoughts, the memories of the experiences that I've had in war, the more difficult I I, I will say the more impossible it is to integrate. Okay. Okay. So how did you come across Buddhism? Ah. Well, <laughs> Interestingly enough, so when when you go into military, you're issued um, identification tags, mm-hmm. call them dog tags. Mm-hmm. On dog tags, they have uh, you have your name, you have your blood type, and you have your religion, and so that if you're wounded or so if you're wounded, they have some way to identify you. And, and attend to you immediately. Or if you're dead, they have some way to identify you. Mm-hmm. They're made out of a very soft uh, kind of material, aluminum kind of material, so that um, what they what they do if, if you were killed, then they can take that tag and they can put it in your mouth and close your teeth on it and locks it in place. Um, mm-hmm. Now, on my when they asked me for religion, I, I didn't really have one. And what, so... I, and I have no idea what motivated me to do this, but I put as a religion, I put Buddhist. <laughs> I, I don't even, I didn't even know what Buddhist was. Because <laughs> oh. I still have my original tags. What prompted me, I guess it was an evolutionary process for me. The first and most important thing was that um, I had to, to stop, um, I had to stop drinking alcohol and taking other drugs. I just had to stop and stay stopped mm-hmm. because there was no possible, there was no moderation for me. There was no possibility to do things differently. I had to stop and stay stopped. I went into a treatment center and not so much by design, but 
by encouragement. Okay. Um, and in that treatment center, I did uh, I did discover that uh, first and foremost, um, I really needed to, to that the the alcohol and drugs that I was using were um, creating were at the heart of a lot of the issues, the chaos in in my life, um, and that if I was willing to stop taking them and then uh, reach out for support around the issues that would surface once I took that blanket of intoxicants away, then um, my life would start to make sense uh, in ways I could not have imagined because up until that point, my life didn't make any sense. Mm. So I, I stopped. I, I went to this treatment center in May of 1983, and um, I, I stopped taking intoxicants then, alcohol and other drugs, and I've stayed stopped. Now, the first probably six or seven years of this process of not um, hiding under the blanket of intoxicants uh, were very challenging and difficult for me. However, um, I was uh, in therapy with a psychiatrist. I was also working with a social worker. And and uh, and really, the, those two people helped me to save my life. Um, and, and when I say that, it's not because I, I necessarily wanted to die. I just really, I didn't have any idea how to live. Life was a mystery to me. Um, and in, in some respects, even today, life still remains a mystery to me. Um, I, I don't quite understand regular life as people live it. Um, mm -hmm. Now, at a certain point, um, the social worker, I was in a, in a therapy group with the social worker, was a mixed group men and women because I was making an effort to learn how to socialize because mm -hmm. I, since the war, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not really good. <laughs> I wasn't really good at socializing. Um, now, um, this social worker, she was really good. She was very, very sharp, very insightful. And at a certain point, she approached me and said, look, I know that the regular systems of help that are available to veterans don't really work for you because you have such a distrust of those systems. Um, and, and that distrust makes sense uh, based on your experiences. Uh, what she did say to me was, there's this there's this Buddhist monk who's done some work with Vietnam veterans and has had some success. And 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 there are some books that he's written and um, um, you could get them out of the library because I, I was unemployable. And 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 I I smiled at her and agreed to do all of that. And, and back in in my mind, what I was really saying was that I, I think this social worker has um, is confused. I don't think there's anything that I could ever get out of any of that religious stuff because it's what I was translating it into in my head. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I never did read the books. <laughs> but a month, not at that time, but a month later, a, a member of that group um, approached me with a catalog from a holistic institute in upstate New York where with a, um, there was a, an advertisement in this catalog where this, the, the monk that the social worker talked to me about was going to be at this holistic institute offering a retreat for veterans. I, I opened it. This was in the middle of the therapy group. I opened it up and I looked at it and I go, oh, that's wonderful. I'd, I'd really like to go. Um, oh, it'd be so great. I lied. Um, 
because <laughs> I, I no, I just wanted to protect my space because it was a safe space for me, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel very safe in the world. Uh, and I said, but yeah, I, I don't have any money. I can't. I couldn't really afford something like that. And then they reached over, turned the page, and it highlighted a section where it was written, "We give scholarships." And so I was back. <laughs> I mean, I so I, I called them up, and I um, made. I just told them the truth of who I was and what I was dealing with, and I, knowing that they would tell me I couldn't come. <laughs> There, the staff at this place really didn't, they were really, they called up the organizers and said, hey, look, we got the call from this guy. We don't think he, he's a good candidate to come. And the organizers said, well, we don't turn anybody away. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I went. And um, with a great deal of skepticism, a great deal of fear, a great deal of apprehension, I went there. When I arrived there, I think it was these people hugging each other and stuff. And I went, wow, this is just creeping me out. Uh, I, uh, when they had the first meeting in the big hall, there were about 80 people there. I thought they were all veterans. I found out later they weren't. And most of them were, but some weren't. I went, I went in the side door and I sat in the front near the exit so that I, I, if I needed to get away, I could get away quick because I didn't feel safe in groups. Mm-hmm. And when the monk walked out, all of a sudden I realized that the monk they were talking about was Vietnamese. Mm. I thought I had made peace with this. I thought I didn't have any issues around Vietnam or Vietnamese. And I saw this monk and, wow, boy, all sorts of feelings rose up and thoughts racing through my head. And and uh, but but I stayed. I mean, I made a lot of calls during the process because I wanted to leave. I wanted to get out of there because I, I, I wanted to escape the feelings that were coming up for me and the feelings of hate and disgust and confusion and, and uh, fear and lack of safety. And, and, um, and I kept being encouraged to stay. And I remember at a, at a certain point, um, this monk made a statement. He said, um, you veterans are the light at the tip of the candle. You burn, uh, hot. you burn hot and bright. You have an opportunity through your through your willingness to wake up to your suffering to bring an end end of suffering in the world. And when I heard that, I just burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And because for there was something somehow that somehow I had a, an unspoken sense that what I perceived as my greatest liability could somehow become an asset. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't put that all together at the time, but I think that's what I was experiencing. I think that's and, a point, an important point for people, Claude, that, uh, yeah, that when you, you think something that is uh, very negative, perhaps, about yourself, that it actually can be something that can be very positive in a, if, in a different context. That has been, that's true for me. That's become true for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the time. But it's, so it's somehow about how, it was somehow about the conditioning I had from my father and, and, and from that generation of people and from the society and culture that I grew up in that was, that had, where I was convinced that I didn't dare talk about these things that what I did was horrible, and 
and I couldn't burden people with that. I didn't understand that by my willingness to to become more present with how I was affected, to, and to, and that's a discovery process. I mean, I didn't you don't I didn't know it all at once. It 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 shows itself. It's continuing to show itself over time. That by being candid and open about that, um, it also per- gives permission to other people to be candid and open about whatever their suffering it is. And it's in this process that we create a language of feelings that facilitate um, healing and transformation, understanding that, as you mentioned earlier in the introduction, healing is not the absence of suffering. It's learning to live in a conscious relationship with it, at peace with our unpeacefulness. I am not defective. So I, I, I live with post-traumatic stress. I am not disordered. I take the D out of it. I'm, I'm really wounded, morally wounded. And I was being trained, I was being asked and trained to violate every uh, principle that I was ever educated with in church and in school about hurting others and about respecting um, the rights of women and children uh, by um, um, not killing, um, by uh, just, just this is a plethora um, ways in which I was conditioned to, to to be in the world, and all of those were turned upside down through military training and then service. Well, and it also seems to me that by being able to speak about these things, it becomes a shared experience, whereas otherwise you were just isolated in 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 your loneliness of not being able to share this with anyone. True, absolutely true, and it's true not only for me. And it's not only true for war veterans, it's true for any of us who are trapped in these cycles of suffering. Um, there's a dynamic I watched it. I, I, so well, me, before I go off on that, down that, <laughs> on that, let me go back to the, the retreat. Um, at the conclusion of the retreat, I went, um, I went up, I wanted to go talk to the monk who facilitated the retreat. And I wanted to apologize, to, to make amends in some way for all the suffering that I had been responsible for mm. in Vietnam. Uh, when I got there, uh, I, I, um, I don't, he wasn't there, but his attendant was there. And, and uh, I wanted to, to say that I, I, I just couldn't do it. I was crying and the snot was running out of my nose and all I could all that could come out of my mouth is I want to go back to Vietnam. And 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 what the 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 monk's attendant said to me was, "Look, before you do that, because if you go back now, you will be exploited. Hey, come to our monastery and let us help you. We can help you." Hmm. And um I understood that I had been waiting um all my life for someone in, in the United States to say that to me. Mm, wow. no, one had, no one had ever said that. No one. I agreed to go. I, I agreed to accept I, I agreed to accept that invitation. But I said, look, I'd really like to come, but I can't. I don't have any money. They said, don't worry about that. Just make the commitment to come and let's see what happens. So I did. I made the commitment to go. Two and a half hours I made that after I made that commitment, I was suddenly filled with fear. 
and and the way that fear showed itself to me was the was like this the only reason those people invited me to come is that when i get there they're going to put me on trial for war crimes and they're either going to lock me up in prison or they're going to kill me oh my goodness that's just, that's how my fear showed itself to me mm. now I reached out to the people close to me, the social worker, um, and and a few others, and they they assured me that that probably wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that was, uh, but it was very real for me. Um, so so at, at a certain point, I had to trust. I had to trust that what this social worker was telling me was uh, rooted in some truth, because it wasn't what I believed. And so I had to put my trust in, in, in something outside of myself. I did that in the military, and the cost was enormous. Um, so to, to overcome my, um, it was a great effort to, 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 and a lot of hard work to overcome that, um, the deeply ingrained sense of distrust I had. Uh, uh, so I, I did. I just, I just trusted her. I, I made a commitment to go, and, and all of a sudden I started to receive letters, and I mean the letters were checks, and people were donating money so I could buy a ticket, and, and mm -hmm. this was like, staggering to me. Suddenly I had a certain sum of money. Um, you know, at the time this was like what, this was 1990, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there with like, me who doesn't have a job, and. I'm sitting there with like seven or eight hundred dollars in checks. <laughs> wow, you know, and that's a good lesson that that making a commitment to something that the universe finds a way to provide for you. Yeah, it's it. Yes, yes. That that that's that's another point about spiritual practice. However, um, I had to make a decision at that point. So do I actually buy the ticket to go to this monastery, which was in France, mm -hmm. or or do I take off to South America, go to <laughs> something? Yeah, really, these were this is what I had to wrestle with this. But the, the larger truth was these people gave me these gave me this money to take this next step, and and so um, because I was living a life different from what I was living when I was using alcohol and other drugs. Um, my, I understand that the only valuable currency that I have is my word. Mm -hmm. And so um, I bought the ticket. I bought the ticket with the intention to go to this monastery for 30 days. And when I got there, I ended up staying for three years. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I cannot t tell you why. It, it was a Vietnamese monastery. I was surrounded by Vietnamese everywhere. Everywhere was another memory of the war. There were moments that were just excruciating for me, but I did not run away. I stayed present through all of that, and 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 this, my life started to unfold differently for me. Mm -hmm. Wow! I mean, I, you are so to be commended for sticking with it and not letting your fear overrule what you really knew in your heart, your soul, to be right—the right thing to do. Well, thank you. I, in my heart and soul, it was not the right thing to do, um, but I was being encouraged to do it. Well, to not squander the money. Mm -hmm. Yes, that that was that was the right thing to do to buy the ticket <laughs> to not run <laughs> off to South America. Um, and, 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 and 
but really to trust, to trust, to really trust in in uh, in, in someone, and to trust in someone. The, in this case, the social worker and a few people close to me who were encouraging me to take the step to really trust in that. And then when I got to the monastery, to to just because those stories kept manifesting themselves, the stories that they just wanted, that they really didn't want to help me. They wanted to, they wanted to kill me. Uh, those stories kept manifesting themselves. I, I just kept doing the next thing because I, I had just reached a point. I said, well, you know, if if I get killed, then maybe this is all done. Maybe that's what needs to happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just kept doing the next thing. And and it's I, I don't I, I cannot tell you with any kind of clarity or honesty what it was that that um, what was at the root of my motivation to continue. I just did. I just continued. Um, now, after three years, I, that I understood this wasn't a place for me. I left. Uh, shortly after that, um, I was invited to come to um, a Buddhist college in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I was invited to... Um, they had a summer program going on, and I was invited to facilitate sitting meditation um, there and this was somebody who had met me in this monastery and to do sitting meditation there and I was asked to do a public talk there and and when I was there there was uh, a, a an, an American ordained in a Japanese Zen tradition he was there and some people who studied with him was there and and they talked about what he was doing and it was intriguing to me and he was located in Yonkers New York I was living in Concord Massachusetts and so I I organized a meet with this man, and and I I met with him, and he said, "Hey, um, I want to ordain you." Wow! And I, went, I went, yeah. I went, what? <laughs> I said, you don't even know me, and and I, and then so I was still a bit, I was still pretty rough around the edges, and so my language wasn't so clear. And I said, "What, what in the f do you want with me?" <laughs> and and. Uh, he said, "Oh, nothing." I said, "I just want you to continue doing what you're doing and stay committed to an act to meditation practice." I mean, it was the right thing to say at that time, but it wasn't entirely true. <laughs> I did become ordained in that lineage. That's what, the lineage I'm ordained in now. I've been living as a a mendicant ordained monastic for over 25 years now. Wow! And and uh, even though there are times when I'm filled with great doubt, um, I can. I can say that for the most part, uh, right now, this way of living for me is just the best in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't have to believe in anything. Um, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what, what I do. It just matters that I remain committed to the basic basic tenets and principles that were passed on to me through my training as a Zen monk. That person has since died. Actually, both of them have since died. Mm-hmm. And I owe, uh, I owe an unrepayable debt of gratitude to them. Um, one for one gave me helped me to find my voice, and the other gave me the container with which it could be expressed in a way in which people would uh, listen. Mm. Wow! So, Claude, how do you help others now? How? What is your? You know, what is your? Uh, what do I want to say? What is your journey? How are you helping others who are suffering? Well. My premise is that I cannot teach or help anyone 
um, doesn't, mm -hmm. who isn't already in a position to want to do things differently. Through my vows, I'm, I'm, uh, I want to say mandated, but that's not. I mean, there's no, there's no such thing as a mandate. But I'm, I am committed by vow to accept the invitations that come my way, and and over the years, those invitations have just keep growing exponentially. I keep getting invited into these really challenging circumstances. Like I go into war zones and in refugee camps, and I go into locked psychiatric facilities and into maximum security prisons. And, and what I do in there mm -hmm. is I just, I, I'm candid with who I am, where I've come from, uh, and, and I offer them just the very basic um, premise that one, I can't teach them meditation. What I can do is pass along a form to them. And, and that form is critical to the process. The form is not meditation, but the form, um, if they're willing to practice it and, and consistently and in a committed way, will reveal the reality of meditation to them mm -hmm. and to let them know that meditation and daily life are not two things. That, that everything we do um, presents the possibility, everything we do is, is presents the possibility to engage uh, in the reality of an active meditation practice, working, eating, talking, um, uh, writing, every every moment of our lives, and is is presents the possibility to embrace um, the the truth of meditation, which is mm -hmm. not just something that we do. It's it's a it's a way of living that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what we believe, think, or say. It just it it's everything has everything to do with what we do. I also stress though that it's just. Uh, from my experience, it's not possible to do that as long as I'm um, taking intoxicants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it's a part of this just being really present in the moment? A part of this is realizing that I cannot think myself into the moment. And I have to, it, it's by um, being present mm -hmm. uh, to one breath followed by one breath. So an in-breath followed by an out-breath, followed by an un another in-breath. Being really present with my breath um, in all circumstances all the time, that I have the possibility to discover what distracts me, what pulls me out of the present moment. So when I'm connected with my breath, I, I'm connected to the present moment. And in the present moment, all things exist. No past, no future, all things are there. And, and in that present moment, in that space of not knowing, I have the, the possibility to be instructed and informed about what, what I mean, I, instructed and informed about life. Hmm. So I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what you're saying is that no matter what you're doing, you try to bring your focus back to your breath. I make an effort to keep in contact with my breath and everything that I'm doing. Okay. It's impossible. It's imp it's po entirely possible to experience what's often referred to in Buddhist cir Buddhist circles as great awakening. Mm -hmm. it, that's that's and great awakening isn't some extra extraordinary experience. 
great awakening is being able to really discover what prevents me from living in the gift that is this life. Realizing that my nose is on my face. It's just it's, it's everyday life. This is it. There's um, Everyone is seeking for that experience that will sort of transcend mm-hmm. life. It, um, the, what what I've discovered through this practice, what I've discovered through my commitment to Buddhist practice is that the gift of this life, really there was a point in time in my life when when suicide was a very value, very viable option. Mm-hmm. Um, the drug overdoses were coming closer and closer together. I did not see the point of continuing in, with the kind of misery that I was locked into. And, and and somebody said to me, uh, visited me in an intense in an intensive care unit, and said to me, asked me if I was going to do this again, and I said, yes, of course I am. It's it's, it's got to be better. Death has got to be better than this. And they looked at me and they said, how do you know? It could be worse. <laughs> well, now, I, you know, I, just allow me to say that I can see how relevant what you're saying is to today the the huge number of teenage suicides and adults too but especially the teenagers who just can't seem to be able to handle this well the veteran community in the united states 22 a day kill themselves wow and those 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 numbers are 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 called from the the states that keep statistics mm. there are only 20 states out of 50 that keep statistics okay so what's the real number right Interestingly enough, the majority, the, the large proportion of those suicides are people, are, are, are veterans, um, say, 55 and older. My generation. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, four generation, my generation. That's why it's referred to as post-traumatic stress. Right. And we never mm-hmm. know when this will surface. We can. I've watched it. I've watched people... They sail along and their life looks pretty good on the outside. You know, job, family, kids, um, everything seems to be going okay. Mm-hmm. And then something changes. They lose a job. Um, uh, a child gets into trouble uh, or, or the wife gets really sick. Uh, something happens mm-hmm. that that disrupts this flow or the cycle that they've created. And um, the next thing you know, they're plunged into crisis. And... and they don't intellectually. They can't get their mind around it. They don't understand what's happening. And how come? Like, why is Vietnam surfacing now? What, what, why is the suffering here now? It's because it hasn't been addressed. It needs to be addressed. And and my only hope is that they they can find someone who will support them in that process. Mm-hmm. So when veterans come to me, that's one of the things that I do. I I just pass on to them what was given to me. It's like I have a roadmap. Say, I give you the map. Um, if you follow the instructions, you get to see what happens for you. It won't happen the same for you as it does for me, but it will. It'll be you. It's a way. It's a way through your suffering. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see, I almost said a way out of your suffering, but <laughs> that's not the point. The point isn't out of. It's through. I think that's an it's important like, point because I think yes. most people try to get out of it. Exactly. And and attempting to get out of suffering is a bit like being trapped in quicksand. Mm. The more we struggle, the quicker we sink. Mm. Interesting. 
It's a good metaphor. Wow. So how, so do you help people on a one-on-one? Like, let's, let's talk a little bit now about, um, your books and, and what you, what you offer, you know, to people, how can, how can people get a hold of you? How could they, how, if somebody is looking for help? Yes. Um, so the first book that was published, it's published by, uh, Shambhala publications. Mm -hmm. The title is At Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. Um, actually, if, 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 if anyone in your listening audience has this book or, or does get this book, in the back of the book is my phone number and my email address. Oh. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had a real – the editor of that book said, said to me, oh, no, you can't do that. Authors don't put that information in their book. And I simply said, I'm not an author. I'm a, I'm a monk. <laughs> But please put it in the book. So it's it's there. Um, I'm looking there is, for it while we're talking because I didn't notice that. Now, there's also the, the is it pronounced Saltho Foundation? Actually, you see, this is in, this is a, it's Zalto, T-H-O. Zalto. Like, okay. like you, like my last name. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, my, I'll say my father's last name. No, that's <laughs> my last name. Actually, this is pretty curious. I ask you not to say it, but. Anyway, my last name is Thomas. So you don't say Thomas, you say Thomas. Mm -hmm. So it's Zolto. Got it. Huh? Now, uh, somebody asked me just the other day, what is Zolto? I said, they made an effort to look it up and figure out what it was, and they couldn't find it. And I said, it's an acronym for my son's name. <laughs> my son who suffered, who, who's had his own experience of me as a result of my uh, service in Vietnam. And, and so... The foundation, the Zalto Foundation, mm -hmm. is, is named after my is named after my son, and in in a way as a as a as a gift to him, mm -hmm. and an acknowledgement of how much he's been affected by my service and all the other children, mm -hmm. uh, boys and girls who were affected by their father's military service. So. The Zalto Foundation, www.zalto.org, Z-A-L-P-H-O. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, um, if people are interested in the book, I mean, it's available in a lot of different places, but if you go on that website, um, you, you'll, you can buy the book directly through there, you can, or it will direct you to some place. Okay, I will, um, I will put a link on the podcast webpage too, so people can just great. click on it. And also, there's a there's an email address there, um, where if people want to get a hold of me, they just write to that email address. It's info at zalto.org, okay. and and that email will be passed on to me. And and I respond to all the emails that I receive, even if they're even if they are not friendly. Wow. Um, although I, I to be truthful, I haven't gotten any in a while. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I. I... Wow, what kind of not friendly email would you get? I can't even imagine. Because of because I've uh, been very candid about my service in in at Hell's Gate. Mm. Um, there have been people who have wanted to. There have been people who doubted whether I actually served with the unit I write that I served with. People who doubted that I was in the military. Um, yes, and and I I under I understand that. I understand a number of people have created a certain um, a certain themis about their uh, a, a veil of 
of uh, an idea. Um, they've created a perspective about the world and 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 by, about their military service. And and if that's challenged in any way, it sort of threatens their whole identity. And so they have to really they have to fight really hard to protect that that identity that they've created. And and if anything threats that identity, that they're willing to do whatever they have to do to get rid of that threat. Mm-hmm. So, so some of that's popped up, but um, I've, I've had a, um, I've, I've been able to, to work with that in a pretty concrete way um, and, 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 and not, not turn away from it and be skillful in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some don't agree with me and, and I don't care. Right. Yeah. They don't have to. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the second book, um, it just recently came out, Bringing Meditation to Life. Mm-hmm. It's published by um, the Oakwood Publishing Company. And, and it's also available in a lot of different formats. And it's available from a lot of different sources. But and rather than name them all, I will simply say if people would, if, or if they're interested, if they go to the website, um, they can find out where they can buy it. Um, it. it it's uh, both books are available on Amazon. Okay. Do you do you facilitate workshops or? You, yes. When I'm invited, um, I um, I um, I'm a, I facilitate meditation retreats, and usually I uh, facilitate retreats to people who don't have any experience. They've never had any experience with meditation before. Don't know anything about it, or they have some experience, but uh, they're not quite sure. So. I, I get invited to do this all over the world. Uh, since COVID, that's changed mm-hmm. in terms of my ability, in terms of the ability to do that in person. Mm-hmm. The same, I get invited to speak publicly um, uh, about various topics, and I get invited all over the world. Um, and and that has my ability to do that has also changed recently. So what we did with the advent of 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 COVID and and the initial lockdowns and the closing of borders and things and and the elimination of being able to, or let's say the restriction of meeting in, in groups indoors, mm-hmm. uh, we went online immediately. So we offer um, uh, formal a period of formal sitting meditation um, followed by an introduction to some recitations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, twice a week on Thursdays and Saturdays. Mm-hmm. That's listed mm-hmm. on the website. Okay. There are also other groups in this lineage, under the Zalto under the Zalto uh, umbrella, who also have groups who are sitting online. There are groups in Germany and Italy and and in South America and Colombia and Chile. Um, there are other groups here in the U.S. And um, these groups, although under the umbrella of of Zalto, they they really they're tasked with finding ways to support their communities right where they are, mm-hmm. how to be of service to their communities. That's, that's, that's really the call. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. And so there's a document there with, with where people have access to other, uh, where people have options. Um, also, we have been facilitating med- meditation retreats online uh, for the last year. We do one a month. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so we've we've made those kinds of we've made those kinds of adjustments uh, with the realities of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been in, I am traveling a bit uh, now. Um, I went I was invited to come to Europe uh, 
Um, I, I, I facilitated two events there. Uh, one was outside and one was in um, uh, a bubble. Uh, not not literally a bubble. But, <laughs> no, not literally a bubble. But um, it was at a, it it um, it was facilitated at a retreat center in Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, a pretty big place. And and they have they created a circumstance based on the rules governing COVID in Switzerland and based on their own requirements uh-huh. that uh, if you wanted to come, uh, you had you had to meet certain criteria. Okay. And if you met that criteria. And it was okay for you to come. And then uh, once you were there, um, then you could meet in groups. And but you couldn't come and go. You had to stay together there. Uh huh. And and so I, I had that experience, and it was um, it was really uh, it was really important to have. It was quite an it was a quite an interesting adjustment after so long not meeting with groups, and uh, and and that there are invitations starting. Their invitation started to come again, mm-hmm. and as, um, we move closer into 2022. And we just have to see how things continue to unfold. Right, right. I mean, I can imagine at helping to facilitate uh, retreats myself. That, I mean, there's there's nothing that compares to being in person and making those uh, connections with people and having the in-person experience. But obviously if you can't online is the next best thing, but uh, I'm sure it was quite wonderful to get back to being able to do it in person. Yeah. I will say it was, it was interesting, but this is a curious thing about online. So the, so I have a, there is a group of people who attend consistently Thursdays and Saturdays, and there's always new people joining. Mm -hmm. Now, these are people whom I would have, I may have, I may have only had contact with them once a year for a couple weeks. And now I see them, I see them once a week. Mm -hmm. And and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for the existence of, for the ability to connect in the way, in ways in which we're connecting now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, you're, you're up in British Columbia and I'm down here in the panhandle of Florida. (laughs) Like we're like a four and a half day drive apart. Right. And yet we can have this incredibly um, um, stimulating conversation. Yes. No, I agree. We're, we're very blessed that we can, that all of this is set up at this time so that we can still stay connected. Yeah, I, I thought about this. I mean, this this is something that was intriguing to me. So I did not know, I didn't have any awareness about the Spanish flu pandemic. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I had no awareness of that. I didn't know that 50 million people died from the Spanish flu, from through the Spanish flu pandemic until COVID. Mm-hmm. And I, I wondered what it must have been like at the turn of the century to have that experience with soldiers coming back from war and, 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 and there wasn't no telephones. Right. Right. No, I went, I just said, wow, you know, what was that like? What, I wonder what that was like for people. So I'm very thankful that we have the opportunity that we have. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, Claude, is there anything that you would like to uh, leave the listeners with that you haven't uh, been able to express so far? Um, I, I think I've been. I think things. Have, this has been a pretty thorough conversation. Mm-hmm. What I do do. What I do encourage people to, 
is that if uh, that to engage themselves with an active sitting practice. So I encourage people just do this twice a day, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. You know, really just do this. Do it just to do it and see what develops out of that. If you're doing it, however, to accomplish something, if you're doing it to escape something, um, it'll turn on you. Mm -hmm. If you do it, then do it just to do it. This is uh, this is a meditation, not medication. It's not a panacea. It, it's 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 an opportunity to wake up to suffering, and if we and and as we're able to hold our ground and become more familiar with our suffering, with the support of a a, a community of like-minded people, um, and that are guided by an authentic teacher, someone who's in an established lineage. Um, Things can become quite different. I, I'm a testament to that. Yes, you are. I would never have imagined. I mean, seventy to nineteen seventy to seventy-two, I was living in a an abandoned car in an alleyway between Sixth and Liberty in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, homeless. Wow. And and where I'm at now, I go, wow. And and I haven't done anything. Well, I, it's just my life, so right. I, I don't see it the way people see it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's just about doing this just to do it. Understood. Wow. Well, thank you. This has really been inspiring. And uh, to see and to hear, you know, your journey and the path that you've been on and your really your, your ability to feel the fear, but do it anyway. Well, thank you, Janine. I appreciate that. Um, I, I really admire that. And well, thank you for who you are and all that you do. And thank you for your courage and your dedication. You're very welcome. And I will say uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well. The podcast website is realjanine.com where you can listen to and download episodes. And remember, once again, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to your favorite podcast provider. You can also listen to slideshow videos on BitChute. Please remember to, please remember to subscribe while you are there. Now, just a, a point, because this episode is over 60 minutes, and my last conversation was over 60 minutes with Stephanie Seneff. And when I tried to put it up on BitChute, it wouldn't let me. So I may have to start using Rumble or something like that. But there will be a link on each web page uh, for each guest. So that may be where you'll have to go if you don't see it on BitChute. I may have to use another platform. Um, my chicken is in the way here. Uh, move over. Thank you. Do you know someone who would find Claude Anchin's conversation inspiring? I I'm sure there are so many people right now who need inspiration, who can have a, oh, how do I want to say it, can have a, a, a sense that they don't have to be stuck where they are, that things can change. Um, and I think all you need to do really is desire it. And as, as Claude said, make the commitment and then things will start to show up in your life. So please share the love. And as always, Take care and be well.